Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In every success, there are always unsung heroes. The men or women whose names aren't up in lights. You'll find them at the back of the ticker tape parade if they're in it at all. This week on the Playmakers Playbook, he's not a coach, not a player, nor an administrator. But he was an essential part of Australia's success at the 1999 Cricket World Cup and the Sydney Swans AFL Premiership in 2005. His mantra? Embrace the mundane so that players can achieve the monumental. This is the Playmakers Playbook, brought to you by BuildCorp, celebrating 30 years of continual learning and successful partnering. Hello, I'm Nick McArdle, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you want to be a better leader in business, sport or the everyday, or if you simply love a good story, this podcast is for you. For more than 20 years, today's guest has had a ringside seat watching some of Australia's best sporting leaders ply their trade. Dave Misson has been the high-performance guru for the Australian cricket team and Sydney, St Kilda and Melbourne in the AFL, and that's just part of the story. He's currently living in Toronto, Canada, where his wife Catherine has taken a role after 11 years as principal at Melbourne Girls Grammar. Leadership's in the family. So the ground cleared now, and that's it. Australia are the World Cup champions of 1999, and well might they celebrate on the balcony here at Famous Lords. And if you look closely there, you might be able to see a a very young Dave Misson on the balcony after that victory. Dave, thanks very much for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. Yeah, pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having me. Must seem like a long time ago, 1999. That was not necessarily the start, but that was probably your first big gig, wasn't it, the Australian cricket team around that era? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I'd been sort of pottering around, started a business in 92, uh, and had a you know a lot of good sort of little uh, contracts with different sporting teams, primarily working on speed development, which is you know I had a background in track and field, um, but my aim is to really crack you know working with a team full time, um, and yeah that was that was my big break and it was you know one of the best jobs I've ever had. During that time, uh, what were the things that uh, that you know when you've hit the big time like that? that you really learnt about, uh, about leadership? Uh, I think, look, what I learnt then is probably the, the, the biggest thing that I consider now is, um, uh, you know, what uh, differentiates a, a great leader, um, and that is, you know, walking the walk. Um, you know, great leaders are judged by their actions, you know, not what they say. Uh, and, you know, I had, a, I had one really good leader when I, I first started, which was Mark Taylor. But, um, you know, Steve Waugh is probably still top three on, on my list of, of great leaders that I've, you know, seen and worked with. And what was it about, uh, about Steve in particular? 
Yeah, look, it's interesting because he, he had a public persona of being the Iceman, you know, and um, it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, he, he had such empathy, in particular for the young players coming into the team. Uh, I think when he first started as a young player in the Australian team, it was almost, you know, you needed to serve your time for two or three years before you could actually make a contribution in team meetings and and stuff like that. But, you know, he he had a really strong feeling that if you were good enough to make an Australian team, then you're good enough to provide a contribution with regard to strategy, tactics, and all that other stuff. Um, he really believed in connection. You know, when he took over as captain, it was really when the selectors were starting to um, pick a one-day team and also a test team. So, you know, you had players who obviously played in both squads, but you had some transient players who came in and out of the squads. And he really wanted to make sure that those two teams remain connected. Um, so he did a lot of stuff there that, that helped that, and that really opened my eyes. There was a word there that you used early on, empathy. Is that, uh, is that a key to good leadership? Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Um, you know, especially in these times, um, you know, what we're going through now, leaders understanding what their people are going through is absolutely critical. Um, and, you know, understanding themselves and, and realising that, you know, they're not always going to be the rock and they're not always going to be the source of, you know, all knowledge, but uh, understanding that they're uh, vulnerable as well in, in different ways, but um, showing empathy to others and also to this, themselves is critical. In that, that team of that era, uh, 99, around the time that you were there, gee, there's some strong personalities in that team and, and history has now told us that not all of those personalities got on particularly well with the others at certain times. How did you handle that in, in your role? Look, I, I just tried to do my job as, as best as I could. Um, and, you know, we it was actually that World Cup there was at the end of a very long tour. Um, you know, we had a long summer in Australia um, and then we almost had only, I think, three days off before we went to the West Indies. And that was a, that was a tough tour. You know, people think of the West Indies as this, you know, Calypso and, um, you know, a really great place. But, it, you know, it's actually a really tough tour. And we played four tests there in a one-day series. Um, and there was some tough stuff going on there. You know, Warney, you know, was coming back from injury. Um, you know, Stephen and the Swiss decided to leave him out of the fourth test. And that, you know, obviously caused some issues with him. Um and then we basically just went, we had a week off where our families came over and then we went straight to England for the, for the World Cup. Uh, you know, I vividly remember getting home from that. Uh, I'd been away from my kids for five months and, uh, you know, went to my son's primary school and, I, you know, the teacher let me in the classroom and I just burst into tears when I saw him because I just wasn't used to being away from my family for that long and, you know, the players were exactly the same. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a tough time, but obviously, you know, the end result was unbelievable. Yeah, I think we forget sometimes that life on the road, and I know families travel probably a little bit more now than they did then, but you know it can be very tough at times during those long tours. Um, someone in your role, have you found yourself over the years to be, um, because you're sort of straddling management, but you're also mates with the players, have you found yourself to be a bit of a, a shoulder to, to lean on for some of those, some of those guys? Yeah, look, I think everyone in, you know, high performance and, you know, physios and you end up being a bit of an amateur psychologist a lot of the time. Um, but especially on the cricket tour where you're essentially going out to dinner with guys every single night. Um, 
and you, you know you, you get to know them intimately and um, guys will open up to you about issues that are going on uh, over and above their cricketing stuff and uh, yeah look I, I really enjoyed that though you know I really enjoyed getting close to the players and um, understanding what made them tick you know that sort of helped me in my role uh, in you know trying to push them still pretty hard and getting the best out of them. It would have been a very steep learning curve for you though as you say you you know you'd been with some other sports before that but in terms of that role gee that must have been huge yeah no it was and um you know i have, I have a great memory uh you know we um when i first started with the team in 98 we sort of had a camp prior to a pakistan tour and um you know i just try to work my ass off in that camp and play my role and just show to coaches and players that i was prepared to go the extra mile um we went to Pakistan, which you know was a really tough place to tour as well. And um, on the bus, on the way to the the first test in Peshawar, the first morning, uh, I was sitting up the front. Everyone's pretty nervous, pretty quiet. And Justin Langer came up and sat next to me and had a little sheet of paper. And on the sheet of paper was written the song, uh, you know, the victory song, the words to the victory song. Yeah. And he said to me, he said, "You're one of us now. Um, you've proven, you know, that you can do the job." Uh, you need to learn these words because we're going to be singing it a fair bit. So, How good's that? And, uh, yeah, he was, he was a bit of Nostradamus there because we went on a pretty decent winning streak. Yeah, there was a bit of a tear through that time, wasn't there? So yeah. um, you look at uh, the work that you've done, and, and we'll talk obviously about the Swans because that's another one of the highlights. But, um, you know, New South Wales and, and Cricket Australia, Tennis Australia, North Sydney Bears back in the day. Uh, New South Wales Institute of Sport, Australian Institute of Sport, Sydney Swifts. I mean, you must have come across uh, good leaders and and poor leaders. Um, how have you sort of taken all of that on board and, and put it into the mix and and now thrown it at what you do at the moment? Yeah, yeah, it's a really, really good question. Um, I'm sort of currently studying a Masters of Leadership uh, and I think the thing that I take out of the you know, doing the academic stuff at the moment is that the leaders that I saw in sport uh, never got any training, you know, and the thing that I, I take from what I'm doing now academically is that leadership is a skill, you know, and I, I think a lot of the time in sport, people feel that, you know, leaders, are, they're born leaders. Um, leaders are born and not made, but couldn't be further from the truth. So, you know, I look at the great leaders that I, I came across in sport. You know, Liz Ellis was one of them, uh, Stuart Maxfield, obviously Stephen. And they, they didn't have any training, you know, and they had to learn on the job. And um, it probably makes their leadership capacity and their, their ability even more uh, pronounced that, you know, they, they didn't have anyone to really uh, help them navigate that. Um, and they, they're all intelligent people. They're all people of integrity. And that, you know, is obviously a great starting point. I was going to ask you what what were the common threads there. So um, integrity, intelligence. Is there anything else that was just a, a natural thing about those guys and girls? I still think a great leader needs to have uh, a level of expertise with what they're leading. You know, I, I look at the, the three people I mentioned, and you know, someone like Stephen just had an intimate knowledge of the game, and you know, I used to marvel sitting in the change rooms and listening to him and Mark almost predict what was going to happen two or three balls down the track because they could just see it coming. Um, you know, and, and, and Liz is another one in netball. Uh, she just had a great innate sense of the game. Um, 
but obviously a great understanding of people, you know, your ability to manage people, you know, with a whole heap of different personalities and, you know, just to get the best out of them under pressure, which is a critical aspect. Knowing those people, um, and you obviously know those three better than I do, but I've had a bit to do with all three of them. And, you know, it's it's not just that natural ability. There's also a really good work ethic with all of those three as well. Is that is that something that you see now in corporate leadership that uh, that maybe some leaders don't work hard enough at being leaders? Absolutely, yeah. And I, and I think I think a typical story, Nick, is that you know, and not just sport, but also business, is that you know when you're really good technically at, at something in, in your role, there's just an assumption that you can then step up and become a leader. Um, just because you have technical expertise, but it's it's just not the case. Um, and that, that's probably, you know, my journey. By the time I finished at Melbourne last year, um, you know, leadership was, I don't know, 60, 70% of my role. And, you know, I was only on the tools 30 or 40% of it. Um, and it was, you know, I became technically very good at what I did, but there was just an assumption that I could then be a leader and 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 manage people. Uh, and it's just not the case. So leaders need to invest in their own leadership just as much as they do in technical skills. Well, let's talk a bit more about that. I was going to get to um, where it finished last year, but um, but your time at Melbourne, what did you finish up doing and uh, and how did you go with that leadership? Yeah, look, I you know, it's been uh, great for me to reflect on that, um, you know, since I finished. So I've had about six months now, and uh, look to, to me, it's it's really making sure I think, or being yourself first and foremost. That's an absolute absolute key. Not trying to be someone that you're not. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm not an autocrat. Uh, I, I like to listen to people's opinions, and uh, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to be the smartest person in the room. I don't have a, a huge ego, so I was quite happy to to let other people solve problems. Um, but I think my team by the end probably wanted me to be a little bit more decisive with regard to things. Um, and I think I could have sought feedback a lot more often, uh, and maybe push people a little bit harder as well. Um, and as I say, you know, I was on the treadmill really in, in sport for nearly 25 years. And when you're playing seasonal sports like AFL, you, you very rarely get to step off that treadmill and reflect on how you're going. So this, you know, last six months has been absolute gold for me combined with, you know, the tertiary stuff that I'm doing to really think about what I do, stepping back into a, you know, a leadership role like that. Is it hard for uh, for a leader when they have a certain style, let's say they're more collaborative, for example, and, and they want uh, the people, their team that they're leading to, um, to be empowered by making their own decisions? Um, but as you say, you know, you've got that side of things, but then you've got, or maybe I should have been a, a little bit more decisive. How, how does that balance work where you are actually trying to empower people you're working with, but they're looking at you saying, mate, just make a decision. You know, how, how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. I think it's just having, you know, being a little bit more intuitive um, and getting that balance right between canvassing opinion and discussing, you know, the opinions that are thrown up, but not letting it just go round and round in circles so that everyone's just saying the same thing over and over again without 
you actually stepping in and saying, well, look, I've, I've heard what you're saying. You know, I think all the ideas are, you know, admirable, but this is the way we're going. Um, and look, I, I think I did that a lot on my journey, but sort of reflecting, I, I probably could have done that a little bit more and a little bit better. You would have seen over the stretch as well uh, where authority leadership is challenged. Um, and I, you know, I imagine there was a time with the Aussie cricket team where that happened. Uh, how is that handled? Yeah, I've just finished reading one of the best books I've read for a long time. Um, it's called Perform Under Pressure, and it's written by a, um, a forensic psychiatrist called uh, Kerry Evans, who worked with the All Blacks. And he talks about the, the red and blue mind. So the red mind is, you know, that reactive, emotional, um, you know, just this is how I feel and this is how I'm going to react. And then the blue mind, which is more um, considerate, logical, reflective. Um, so I think, you know, having a tool like that where you think, well, okay, how red and blue is this situation and therefore how am I going to react um, is a is a great tool to have as a leader. And again, it's probably something in this six months, you know, with the academic stuff that I'm doing and also the reading that I think everyone's been forced to do in lockdown um, has sort of helped in, you know, really rethinking, well, how would I handle different situations? And it's got a lot to do with, you know, your emotional levels, I think, and um, being able to recognise what your emotions are and then respond accordingly uh, and not feel, you know, okay, well, he's having a go at me, so this is how I'm going to respond. Well, actually, no, um, they're just giving their opinion and it's diametrically opposed to mine, but that's okay. Let's talk about uh, one of the other highlights of your uh, career, and that was with the Swans. How long were you with the Swans for? Uh, eight years. Eight yep. years, including, of course, the, the 2005 Premiership. We recently spoke to Paul Ruse about that. What are your memories of, of that time and what made that team and that environment uh, so successful? Yeah, I think, look, my, my memories of that time are just just a great club, a great bunch of players, a great cohort of staff and just an unbelievable environment. You know, the, the staff that I work with there are still some of my best friends now. Um, and, you know, it was just a great, great part of my life and a, a great part of sort of sporting history, I suppose. Um, why, why was it like that? Uh, I think that, you know, there was a distinct lack of egos um, right from you know, the head office down, uh, you know, obviously Rusey, you know, didn't have an ego. Uh, Stuart Maxfield and the leadership group, even, you know, Hawley, Goodsey, Brett Kirk, Leo Barry, Benny Matthews, those guys, it was all about the team and the staff were exactly like that as well. Everyone was just prepared to play their role and knew that, you know, team success would um, make everyone feel great and it wasn't about one person over the team. Was that Rusey that started that culture? Was there an element of it already through that club? How did that how did that develop? Yeah, look, it, it absolutely started when Rusey took over, and and when Rusey decided to bring uh, Ray McLean and leading teams on board, um, you know that was an absolute turning point. Uh, I have a really vivid memory. We had a preseason training camp in Coffs Harbour. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And, and Ray came up and ran a session and this was to elect the captain and the leadership group. And we had everyone sitting in a circle. So it was all the players and all the staff. And yet you basically had to write down three people who you felt most typified the behaviours that we wanted our leaders to exhibit. And you had to read out the person. So it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a secret ballot or anything like that. You had to read out. So, you know, you had to look people in the eye who were obviously disappointed and not on the list. Um, and it was a, a really powerful time. Um, and I, th- I think, you know, that, that session in itself uh, almost set us up, um, you know, the whole Bloods culture and, and everything that went after that. How much has things changed in that mm. area? I mean, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, that would have been sing- seen as groups sitting around the campfire, strumming guitars and singing Kumbaya, you know, th- that had a connotation to it, that environment. Yet now... Mm. It's very real and, and very useful. Um, how has that changed? Yeah, really good question. You know, I think it's, it's obviously come full circle now because <clears throat> for most sporting teams, there's just an assumption that there's going to be a player-led leadership group. So, you know, I, and it's, again, something that I'm sort of working through with the course I'm doing, but, you know, is that the right path to go down? You know, it's, it's no secret, but, you know, Melbourne has struggled with, player leadership in the past you know it's a lot better now with you know Gorney and Jack and Nathan Jones and those guys but even when I first got there there was a real dearth of you know quality player leaders and and I'm sure that's why the club suffered for so long um you know there were some great ones historically David Neitz and people like that but Todd Viney um but I think a club's got to assess well if we're going to go down the player leadership path do we have good player leaders and if we don't, then we need to look at a different model. And does that come back to uh, the way players are recruited and, and assessed in that recruitment phase? Does it drill down that far? I think it has to, yeah. I, I, and I think historically, you know, your, your recruitment has been all about talent. But, you know, when you have a look at the great teams of, you know, you look at AFL, the, the great teams of the, the last 20 years, it's, you know, been full of great leaders and not necessarily do the best players in teams win premierships. Um, you know, it's a combination of everything. And I think that's got to be a consideration uh, for recruiting players. Getting back to uh, the Swans, and I touched on it with Paul Ruse a couple of weeks ago, the no dickhead policy, which which became famed. It, it was referred to as uh, one of the reasons for that club's success. He was saying it was never really stated. It was just it was just part of the culture that if you get good people in, good people will want to get in. Yeah, it was just, I don't know. I think I reflect on it. I think it was just an organic process because, you know, when Rusey took over and, you know, we just had such a good playing group. They were just such good people and, you know, humble and uh, egoless and, you know, just prepared to play their role that if you brought in a, a dickhead, they'd just be, you know, they'd stand out so much. And, um, you know, I think they would have struggled in that environment. So how does 
success affect the attitude of a club, the attitude of leaders and players within a club? Because that humility can sometimes exist when you're striving for success, but sometimes when you gain success, a little little bit of that gets chipped away. Was there any semblance of that? Not really. Like I have a distinct memory that, you know, after we won it in 05 and, you know, the celebrations, it all settled down. Um, you know, both staff and players are really determined to, to try and create a dynasty and create, um, you know, a culture that was um, going to provide ongoing success for the Sydney Swans. Um, you know, we early in 06, January 06, so we'd, we'd had a limited pre-season, but we ended up playing North Melbourne in, in LA uh, as part of the G'day LA celebrations. And we, play, we played at a ground at UCLA University. Um, and then we had a training camp at the University of Hawaii after that. And, you know, while we just had it in our minds that we were going to get the absolute most out of this trip and the boys just trained their backsides off in the morning and then they were able to do whatever they wanted in the afternoon. And at no stage did we get to a morning training session and the coaches thought, oh, these guys have been out till three in the morning and, you know, they're not serious. And it was just such a determination <clears throat> to keep building that dynasty. Um, yeah, it was, it was just a great a great place to be. So you've talked about the, the genesis of that dynasty. If you walk into a club that doesn't have that, that has had a, a poor culture uh, over time, what are the keys to turning that around? Well, you know, the, the key, and it's something that Neil Danaher talks about all the time, is that you've got to go from the selfish to the selfless. Um, and that that is right through the whole club with everything that people do. Um, and it's, you know, I suppose the ultimate exhibition of that is on the field and how players play, but you don't just turn it on like a light switch. It's got to be you know, behaviours that are practised, you know, Monday to Friday over a long period of time um, where players come in and, and feel that, you know, it's not what I can take from this environment, it's what I can give and give to my teammates. And how long does that take? You know, is, is, that, a, is that a quick turnaround? Uh, it depends a bit on the leaders that you have um, and then the potential that you have, particularly in your, your playing group and your staff. Um, you know, you may have some players who have sort of been going down the path of that sort of selfish, um, how many possessions can I get this week to, you know, if they have the right leader that really tunes into them and, you know, can speak their language and turn them around, it can happen a bit quicker. Um, I think it's it's quite, um, you know, it's... It, it depends on the environment that you walk into and, and the people that you've got, I think. So we're talking about sporting environments and is that translatable to corporate environments that you've worked in, the selfless rather than the selfish? I think so and, and even more so because, you know, I think in corporate environments people get rewarded for, um, you know, for, for doing things themselves better, you know. So if, you know, your sales targets have you know, you've improved that 20% in the last quarter, then you as a, an individual are, are going to get rewarded there. Um, but I think overall, um, you look at the best corporate environments and it's still about that team. It's still about people working harder and better to make the team improve and the team succeed. Um, so I think it's a little bit more difficult in the corporate environment because of the reward structure uh, but I still feel that, you know, the, the team ethos is a, a critical one to, you know, 
overall corporate success. What about uh, the difference between being liked and being respected? Um, you know, I know that for Steve Waugh, for example, it would be very difficult to find someone who didn't respect Steve Waugh. Is that the most important thing to be respected? Do you, as a leader, do you sometimes have to throw out the window the desire to be liked? Uh, I, th- I think you do. Um, he didn't really care in a way whether he was liked or not. And I look at someone like Stuart Maxfield and he was the same. Um, he just felt as a leader he needed to walk the walk, as Stephen did. And uh, respect was the, the critical aspect there. And it just happened that they were they were good people as well and, and most people liked them. But first and foremost, they would make decisions based on what was best for the team and not what was, you know, uh, what might have suited some individuals more than others. Have you seen that in all your, um, in all the leaders that you, you've respected over time? Is there always that team first philosophy? Yeah, yeah, there is. And it's exhibited in, you know, making hard decisions. You know, sometimes leaders have got to make hard decisions that don't please everyone. Um, and I think, you know, the three sporting leaders that I've highlighted all had to do that. And for Stuart, you know, the, the hardest thing for him was to retire. Um, you know, he, he could see something building in 2005 and he was, he was desperate to be part of it. You know, he had this knee problem that didn't allow him to run for a long time. He was doing three or four sessions a day off legs. Like I got, I got sick of seeing him walking into the gym with his boxing gloves because I'd have to do a session with him. But, you know, the hardest thing for him was to say, well, I'm done boys. You know, it's over to you. Um, and you, it's, you know, I just have so much respect for him for doing that. You would have had to make some some hard calls over your time as well, you know, whether players can play or or not play. I, I imagine there were some challenges there. Yeah, there were. And look, I have a really strong memory um, when I first got to the Swans. So the head doctor was Nathan Gibbs from Rugby League. Matt Cameron was the head physio from Rugby Union and I'd come from cricket. Uh, so Steve Lawson, who was our football manager, had a great idea and he said, boys, we, we really want you to understand what AFL is all about. So we're going to send you to the grand final. And um, I have a vivid memory of James Hurd playing injured. And, you know, he's one of the, the best players to apply the game in the modern era. Went into the game with a groin injury and, um, and really didn't, didn't play well and didn't play up to, you know, the expectations people had of him. It stuck with the three of us so much in that it didn't matter how good a player you were and what your reputation was. If you weren't 100%, then, you know, potentially you could really affect the team. So that, that dictated a lot of our decisions, you know, moving forward. What about Adam Goods? And we've seen, uh, I guess, the role that he's now played for uh, Indigenous Australians. Did you see some? And, and he was obviously, you know, an outstanding captain for Sydney as well. Did you see in those early days something in him that suggested that that he was something special as a leader? Yeah, he, he just needed he just needed the right leaders around him, um, and he needed uh, you know he, he just needed perseverance with regard to belief. I think, um, and not just from a leadership point of view, but in his game also. Um, and it's no surprise that under Ruzi, you know, he thrived because he had had a coach that really believed in him not just as a player, but as a person as well. Uh, and I think both him and Michael O'Loughlin, you know, as proud Indigenous men, you know, really took it upon themselves 
they weren't just leaders of their football team. You know, they were leaders of their people as well. And they felt that responsibility. Um, and, you know, in my opinion, they more than lived up to that. The other thing that you spoke about too was having someone to believe in you. Um, all the leaders that you've mentioned, have they had that that mentor who've, who has kind of empowered them to become the leader that they've become? Uh yeah, I think so, and I think they've they've always had someone that they can bounce ideas off. Um, you know, I, I look at Stephen, and you know, it was some ex-players, someone like Tim May, you know, who he had a, a great relationship with. Um, you know, Jeff Marsh, who was the first coach. You know, Stephen obviously played with Jeff, but you know, he would bounce ideas off him. Um, so I think their capacity to to really to acknowledge that they don't know it all and you know to talk to people that they trust um, and whose opinion they really respect uh, was I think a you know a critical part of them being good leaders now you've uh, you know you've, you've spent the last what 30 years or so um, traveling the world and uh, and you're still doing that but this time courtesy of the other great leader in your house your mm-hmm. wife tell us what you're up to right now yeah look we um we made a decision you know we've got uh, two old, our two older kids are living and working in London. Uh, our youngest finished school last year, and we just felt the time was right to get out of our comfort zone, which is something as a family that you know we've always tried to do because we feel it's a great opportunity to grow. Uh, and Catherine had an opportunity up here in Toronto uh, at a great school, and we just thought, yep, why not? Uh, and for me, you know, I've been working in AFL for 20 years. It was a great opportunity for me to to step back, <clears throat> to do a bit of study, to have some reflection time, and then to have some, uh, potentially have some other experiences with other sports um, to help me sort of grow and develop. And what's life like in, in Canada, particularly considering what we're all going through at the moment? Yeah, look, we, we've been in lockdown here for, for probably eight weeks. Um, so I'm getting a first-hand glimpse of my wife running a school via Zoom from our dining room table. Um, <laughs> She's pretty impressive, actually. Um, yeah, she's a bit of a harder. So it's, um, <laughs> you know, for us, we, we really like each other's company. So for us, it's been quite good um, just spending a fair bit more time together. Um, but again, I think like everyone in the professional world, you know, just being able to listen to more podcasts and do more reading and um, really to professionally develop yourself a bit more has been been great as well. Exactly. There is certainly that opportunity. And What's your vision for how we emerge from all of this and particularly with what you've got going on and, and your leadership hat on? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm sort of really excited to, to be doing some work with Rusey and, and, and his partners at Performance by Design um, up here in Toronto and North America. Um, with, with my study, you know, I, I need to do a mini thesis. So I'm looking to try and do that with one of the major teams up here, which I think would be really eye-opening. Um, because I don't think uh, many teams up here have implemented the, the player-led leadership model. And, you know, essentially leadership is governed by the best players in a lot of, you know, NBA teams and NHL teams. So I'm really looking forward to potentially experiencing that and, and delving into that. The lack of um, leadership groups as such up there, um, why is that? Are they just a little bit uh, behind the curve on that? 
I think it's just the way it's always been done. You know, like talent, talent is king uh, in a lot of the sports up here. And, you know, before lockdown, I had a coffee with a, with an Aussie guy who used to work in AFL, who works with one of the, the NBA teams up here. And I won't tell you his name because that would sort of give it away. But um, I was talking to him about that. You know, I said, what's your leadership structure like with your NBA team? And, you know, is it, uh, you know, is it democratic? Is it, you know, living behaviours and values and things like that? And he said, look, it's basically whatever the best players want to do, that's the way we go. Um, and he said, and the coaches find it really hard to go against that because, you know, oftentimes their players, the, they, these players will say to their managers, well, you know, they're not giving me the love that I need, so get me out of here and get me to another team. So it's, although it's a team situation, it's often still quite an individual um, environment as well. Yeah, I, I think my, my read is that it is a lot like that. And obviously there are, you know, there are teams that aren't like that. Um, and I'm looking forward to trying to find a few of those and experience that. So when your stint in the Northern Hemisphere is over and you do look to come back, is there any great burning desire? Is there a box that you just really want to tick in Australian sport? Look, I, I suppose, you know, the, the, the biggest regret I have is that the St Kilda group I worked with in 09 and 10 didn't win a flag. Um, you know, again, they were just such great people, great team. You know, had a great leader in Nick Rewalt, Lenny Hayes, and and Ross and I are very close. And he was a great coach. And it's the biggest regret I have in professional sport. So, I don't know. Um, I'd love to see the Saints win a flag. Um, they're a great club. But yeah, look, I, I I love AFL. It's a fantastic sport. I think it's the most athletically challenging sport in the world. Um, and for me, as a essentially a fitness coach, a high performance coach, um, you know, it's a great challenge to get players ready to to perform well. But uh, yeah, I'd love to come back into AFL at some point. And you'd also have to think that Ross Lyon wouldn't be sitting on the sidelines for the rest of his working life either. Yeah, look, my humble opinion, he's he's too good a coach to be sitting in the media. But um, he probably needs a break as well. And I think at the moment, well, I know he's enjoying a bit of time off, but. Um, he's a great operator and a great person. Dave, it's been terrific to, uh, to get some of your leadership wisdom and also some yarns out of you as well. Thanks for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. Thanks, Nick. Really appreciate it. Dave Misson on this week's Playmakers Playbook and the book Dave mentioned, written by Kerry Evans, Perform Under Pressure. It's published by HarperCollins and comes recommended by Richie McCaw, Steve Hansen and Arsene Wenger. And here we were, thinking they just made it up as they went along. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by BuildCorp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, give us a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend or even better, put them in a headlock and make them listen. I look forward to your company next week on the Playmakers Playbook. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.